This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, one of the amazing benefits of being a human in the Puget Sound region is our proximity to migrating orcas. We delight in their intelligence, beauty, and spirit. We celebrate them as icons in art and advertising. We go on excursions in hopes of seeing them up close. Their presence here affects who we think we are and what we think this place is. For the orcas, our proximity and appreciation come with few benefits. We pollute their environment, disrupt the way they navigate and search for food with the noise we make, and diminish the availability of their main food source, Chinook salmon. The southern resident population is declining. In 2005, they were listed as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. The status of our local orca population is the subject of Linda V. Mate's new book, Orca, Shared Waters, Shared Home. In it, she writes about their history, their interactions with humans, and what it will take to help them survive. Orcas are an ancient species. The name the Coast Salish people gave them translates as the people that live under the sea. Local tribes honor them, in part for the bonds of family they display. The first generations of white settlers to this region killed and then captured them for display in marine parks. Members of the dolphin family, orcas inhabit every ocean of the world. The southern resident population is made up of three family groups, referred to as the J, K, and L pods. In 1974, the first year they were counted, there were 71 individuals. That number rose to 97 in 1996. The official count for 2021 was back down to 73. Linda V. Mapes reports on natural history, environmental topics, and issues related to Pacific Northwest indigenous cultures for the Seattle Times. Town Hall Seattle presented this talk on November 18th, 2021. My name is Ware Harmon, and I'm the executive director of Town Hall Seattle. And on behalf of our staff and our friends at the Elliott Bay Book Company, it is a pleasure to welcome you to tonight's presentation of Linda Mapes, part of our Arno G. Matulski Science Lecture Series. And as we get underway, I want to acknowledge that our institution stands on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish people, particularly the Duwamish. We thank them for our continuing use of the natural resources of their ancestral homeland. Journalist, author, explorer, and self-described reveler in the natural world, Linda V. Mapes covers natural history, environmental topics, uh, and issues related to the Pacific Northwest indigenous cultures for the Seattle Times, a position she's held since 1997. In addition to her decades of journalism, in 2014 and 15, she received a Charles Bullard Fellowship, Fellowship in Forest Research and spent a year in the Harvard Forest exploring the human and natural history of a single 100-year-old tree. She produced a blog about the experience, as well as an old-fangled book entitled Witness Tree, published by Bloomsbury in 2017. Her latest book, Orca, Shared Waters, Shared Home, is the subject of this evening's discussion, talk, really. Please join me in welcoming Linda V. Mapes. Hi, everybody. It's a, it's a joy to be here tonight on a, on a good night to be a salmon. <laughs> Or a good night to be an orca. I, you know, I have to say, after last summer's drought and heat dome and everything else, I'm really reveling in all the rain. It's just fine. I think it's excellent. It's good for the fish. It's good for the 
good for the orcas. So um, tonight, I want to thank you for coming out. I want to thank Elliot Bay Books for being here tonight. I'm, as a local author, incredibly fortunate to be employed at the Seattle Times, which has been a family-owned and locally produced newspaper for 125 years this year. Um, and I feel just as lucky to be in a city that supports a venue like Town Hall for all of our local arts and culture and bookstores like Elliott Bay Books. So we're, we're fortunate indeed here in Seattle for those things. I want to tell you a little bit about what we're going to do tonight. I, um, I'm very proud of this book, Orca Shared Waters, Shared Home. It, it is the product of years of research with the staff at the Seattle Times, which was the basis of the book. We produced uh, special sections, five of them, called Hostile Waters. And, um, you know, that really took so many people at the newspaper. Especially I want to call out Steve Ringman, the photographer I worked with on, on Hostile Waters series, and also the graphic illustrator Emily Eng. She's a fantastic scientific illustrator and artist. And um, we also created videos that are part of that presentation called Hostile Waters, which you can still find online if you look it up on the World Wide Web, seattletimes.com. Fantastic documentaries about the orcas in addition to a lot of interactives and a truly immersive experience in the articles themselves. So do check that out. It's a great thing to share with students and a wonderful thing to share with your family. After we finished the series, we decided that we would do a book uh, for the community that I like to call the Director's Cut. This is you know, we went deeper and further with the story of the orcas that frequent Puget Sound, the southern resident killer whales. And basically, uh, what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to show you some of the photos from the book and talk a little bit about what is happening with the southern resident orcas, bring you up to date today on their status and what our concerns are, but also some of the hope that I feel profoundly is uh, just absolutely not only essential to feel, but appropriate to feel with regard to this top predator that's been around ever since the ice melted back in Puget Sound. This is not some crybaby species. This is an incredible animal, one of the most intelligent, powerful animals on Earth, um, as are the salmon that they rely on. So we'll talk more about why I actually feel optimistic about the fate of this species and how you're involved in its recovery. This is a special time of year, November and December. This is when the southern resident killer whales come here. They, they come chasing the chum, which is the second biggest salmon in, in the sea, all the way. Those chum, you know, they're headed down to the Nisqually. They're headed to these Puget Sound rivers right now. And the southern residents, they come here hunting them. And so that's when we get to see them, right here in central Puget Sound. This is when the ferries stop and people go running out to the beach on Alki and on the... Vashon and Moria Islands, and, and here's the miracle of these animals right here, downtown orcas. Who else has got that? So with that, um, let's get into it. So many of you uh, probably first heard about the story of the southern resident killer whales with this particular southern resident killer whale. This is Telequa J35, and she burst into all of our worlds in the summer of 2018. And what happened was she, she did something that scientists know that very intelligent, socially connected animals such as giraffes and gorillas, dolphins, will do when they lose a loved one, which is they will grieve and they will stay with that loved one. And what's going on in this photograph is, is Telequa is clinging to her baby calf. And this is a female that she gave birth to and it looked perfect and she'd carried it for 18 months. But the animal lived only one half hour. And she just refused to let it go. I'm going to point out where the baby is. And when I heard of Telequa and her journey of grief, I made a decision. We made a decision at the paper, which was we were going to stay with her during her witness. We were going to stay with her everywhere she went during that time and cover her story of what she was going through, what her whole family was going through. So at the Seattle Times, we, we got ourselves onto boats with scientists who were keeping track of her and um, stayed with her throughout that time. And this photograph that Steve Ringman took, I, we were out all day long to get one frame. This is the frame. <laughs> in sunset light, uh, in Canadian water, actually, and she was off by herself at that time. There were no other boats or any other people around, and we could really hear her labored breathing. We could see how she had to arch her, dot, her back 
in a not usual way in order to keep going down and picking up this calf before the tide would carry it away. And it was so sad to think of her making that decision with each breath to go down and get it again. The calf is about six feet long and weighs about 350 pounds. So this is a lot of work for her. And she sometimes carried it balanced on her rostrum right here on her head. Other times, such as in this photograph, she's actually holding onto one of the pectoral fins ever so carefully in her teeth so as not to mar the baby. And to see her going through this, you know, you just had this sense, you heard her breath, you watched her work, you saw her holding onto the calf, and you just thought, what is she going to? What is she going to do? You know, how long will she carry it? Well, in the end, she carried it for 17 days and thousands of miles. And I don't think anybody expected that. Honestly, I don't think she ever dropped it. I think it just finally fell apart. And when that day came that she had finally dropped the calf and I wrote that story, there were six million people reading that story around the world. And I think I know why. You know, this wasn't just an animal story. This was a story about a mother who happened to be a whale. And anyone who'd ever lost anything, anyone that they loved, knew what she was going through. And so she was the whale who changed the conversation. You know, I think to a lot of people, orcas were just one more endangered species at that point. They were just sort of random black and white wildlife to a lot of people. They did not understand that what these are are families, uh, really close-knit families. The kids never leave the parents for life, which is pretty remarkable if you think about it. Uh, These families stick together uh, lifelong not only that, but you can really think of these J, K, and L pods of the orcas that frequent Puget Sound as an ancient society. This is one of the oldest and most sophisticated societies in the animal world. They've been in these waters for 10,000 years. They have their own language. They have their own greeting ceremony. They have very distinct culture of what food is, salmon, and where and when to catch it. And so, you know, I think... Tahlequah really changed the conversation about these orcas, that she helped people see them for what they are, which are families that were suffering and in deep trouble in home waters that have been their waters for some 10,000 years. So once she had the world's attention, uh, we at the Seattle Times decided that we were just going to really stick with the story. We were going to stick with her. We were going to stick with the orcas and go everywhere that they go and understand and dig deeply to understand the roots of this extinction crisis. What was the problem? Why was this spectacular animal, a top predator in every ocean of the world as a species on our planet for six million years, why were they struggling to live right here in our home waters? So that's what we set out to learn, and we spent 18 months Uh, following the orcas from B.C. up in the Broughton Archipelago where they forage all the way down to California. They take fish out of a very, very broad area from rivers in Alaska all the way down to Sacramento in California. And we were trying to answer this essential question. You know, you look at this beautiful scene. This is San Juan Island in the summer, Mount Baker in the background, and that orca is named Spock. That's a female orca. She surprised a lot of the scientists. She's so so kind of big and hefty, they thought she was a male until she showed up with a calf. <laughs> um, but you look at that picture and you think, well, what could be wrong? It, it just looks perfect, doesn't it? Um, and so that was the goal, was to figure out why it was they were not persisting. And I think the other thing that we were very interested in is why their migratory patterns are shifting. This is the west side of San Juan Island, which really acts as a fish funnel. In summertime, the southern resident killer whales spend a lot of their time in the San Juan Islands because they're chasing Chinook salmon, preferentially Chinook, that's what they really want to catch, that are headed to BC's Fraser River. They don't come here to entertain us or the whale watchers. They come here because that's where the fish are. And everywhere in the world, they specialize in their diet, and they specialize in a diet that they know how to catch using the environmental features of where they live. This isn't just a southern resident thing. A lot of people say to me, well, they should just eat something else. (laughs) They should switch. Uh, That's not how it works. When you're an orca, you are what you eat. And for resident orcas, both northern and southern, that is salmon. They will eat other fish. In winter, they'll take a lingcod, they'll maybe get a halibut, 
but it's salmon most of the time. And in summer, it's Chinook. 98% of their diet is Chinook in the summer. Why? Because it's the biggest fish in the sea and the most calories for the hunting effort. These orcas, the southern residents, are just one type of orca right here in our local waters, the northeastern Pacific. They share these waters with two other types, the transient, so-called, or bigs killer whales, which specialize in eating marine mammals. They won't eat a fish. No, they want a seal. They want a nice, juicy seal. Or they want a sea lion. Or they want to go after a gray whale calf. And they're incredibly good at it. They'll gang up like a pack of wolves and go after even a thousand pound sea lion. They also share waters with the offshores. These are rarely seen orcas. They're way off on the continental shelf. They mostly eat sharks. And this is the key to one of the other really interesting things about orcas. They don't uh, fight like we do between their societies. They, they eat different things. They've partitioned the resources of the region. And so they really don't interact at all. They don't interbreed. They don't interact. They don't mess with each other. They share the sea. And interestingly, um, in the southern resident clan, it's very profound how they will share food, especially the mother orcas will share their catch with their own young, but also other young in the pod. And the mate, these are matriarchal cultures. They're led by the females, especially the oldest females. They're the ones that carry that vast ecological knowledge of where salmon are. And particularly when the salmon runs are poor, that's when they'll really be the ones that take the lead. They'll be a mile ahead of the pod leading them to fish. And so we were curious, why was it that really these, these orcas that for so long have had the habit of frequenting, frequenting the west side of San Juan Island to get their food weren't really doing that anymore? We hear from people who live up there and scientists who follow them that they used to show up regularly in May, and they'd be there reliably through August. Um, that's not true anymore. Now they'll maybe show up finally by mid-July, um, kind of look around and see if they can find anything to eat, and if not, they'll book it right out to the outer coast again. Uh, and mostly these are becoming increasingly coastal animals. They're spending their summers on the west end of the Strait of Juan de Fuca or even out on the outer coast because that's where the food is. And so the question was why? As with any scientific experiment, you always want a control group. You want, you want that baseline about how they should be doing. Well, when it comes to the orcas, that frequent Puget Sound, the southern residents, the closest thing to a control group is the northern residents. This is the very same animal. They have the same preference for eating uh, salmon, but they live in a different place. They're up in the Broughton Archipelago. They're north of the Campbell River of Vancouver Island. And so we thought, okay, fine, we'll go up there and we'll, we'll see what life is like for them. Why is this population doing so well? They've been increasing steadily every single year, more and more and more. Um, and they're always having offspring. And I think the first thing that happened when we went up there and saw this beautiful orca whale, first thing, as soon as we got off, off, off the shore and out onto the boat with Brad Williams, with uh, Rob Williams of Ocean Research and you know, we weren't even trying to see orcas. We were just trying to get somewhere. But we saw orcas every single place we went. They were everywhere. It was a complete reset, really, of what normal is. I mean, we were used to, when we work with scientists in the San Juan Islands, this big drama, oh, would we see orcas? Would they be there? Would we be able to photograph them? Would we be able to get any time with them? Up north, we saw them everywhere we went. And the other thing that we quickly learned uh, when we went to see Paul Spong on Hansen Island, who runs Orca Lab, um, and we prowled around the landscape where he lives, is that these orcas that uh, live up there in the, northern, in the northern realm, they live not just in another place, they live in another world. I mean, this is a tree that's growing behind Paul's lab, and this gigantic cedar, he calls the mother cedar, and this is, this is the kind of intact forest that still exists up there. It's a much wilder place. And these northern resident orcas, they're living with many more varieties of fish, a greater quantity of fish, cleaner water, quieter water. And I think the thing that that told us was that, you know, these orcas, as long as they have what they need, they can do it. They'll do just fine. The northern residents also have some advantages that the southern residents don't have. They have a, 
a spot that's set aside just for them. It's a reserve. It's called the Michael Big Ecological Reserve. And there are beaches there that the orcas love to rub against. They'll push all the air out of their lungs and they'll scooch up onto the beach stones and scratch their tummies. It's just something they enjoy doing. And it's a place where they like to just hang out and there's a lot of play and there's a lot of sex. It's just kind of orca spa time. And this place is just for them. No people are allowed to go there, not even kayakers. And the southern residents don't have anything like that. They don't have a place that's just for them. I think the other thing that we felt was really important to dig into was the history of our own relationship with these spe- with this species. These are Namu's teeth, and they're at the Burke Museum. And uh, Namu was the world's first captive killer whale, captive performing killer whale. And he uh, was captured by Ted Griffin of Washington State up in... Up in uh, where the northern residents live, and in fact, Namu was a northern resident. And Ted Griffin ran an aquarium on the waterfront, and he was an animal collector, and he was really interested in getting an orca because nobody had ever had one. So he put the word out there for his collection, and in fact, he even passed the hat on the waterfront. And these waterfront businesses really wanted him to get an orca because they figured, well, if he did, that'd be great for them. So, you know, Ivar's acres of clams, all these waterfront businesses, and he filled up a knapsack with cash, uh, answered the call from a fisherman up there who accidentally caught an orca in his net, went up there and got it and brought it back to the Seattle waterfront, towing it in a homemade sea pen behind a tugboat. (laughs) And thousands of people turned out on the Deception Pass Bridge to watch the spectacle of a tugboat pulling a live orca whale in Puget Sound. And Ted Griffin brought Namu to the waterfront, and he was greeted as a hero. He was greeted by the mayor and given the key to the city. I mean, it was a very different time. People thought what he had done was fabulous, and thousands of people showed up to watch this captive performing killer whale. And at that time, um, you know, orcas were thought of as these vicious killers, uh, just relentless predators. They were not liked at all. They were reviled, and fishermen shot them on sight. And then suddenly here's Ted Griffin getting in the pool with this uh, orca whale. And not only is the orca whale not attacking him, he's enjoying being brushed with a brush. And he lets Ted Griffin ride him like a little horse. And he, you know, he takes a salmon right from his hand and he, bound, he bounces a ball with his nose. Now, obviously, the orca uh, is completely starved for company. The only thing he's got is Ted and he completely latches onto him. And, and so people's opinion of this animal completely changed. Suddenly, everybody wanted an orca, and Puget Sound became the world's source of supply. And so believe it or not, we had entered what is known as the capture era, when a third of the pods were taken and sent to aquariums all over the world uh, in planes. And you used to be you could be walking down Alaska Avenue by the location of the of the aquarium and, and see an orca being lifted in a sling to be put on a truck to be taken down to Boeing Field to be shipped to SeaWorld. <laughs> it, it's hard to imagine this today, but that was normal. There were pictures of this in the Seattle Times and nobody thought anything of it. Um, and ultimately, though, people's opinions started to change because they saw these orcas and they realized that not only was Namu not vicious, but he was intelligent and he was, um, and he was wholly present as an intellect and as an animal to be reckoned with. And so tides started to change. Uh, people really began to believe that this, this orca hunting should be shut down. And it was. Uh, Back then, three Republicans actually joined together to end forever the whale hunting that was going on in Puget Sound. That was Dan Evans, first governor of Washington and then U.S. senator, still with us today. Ralph Monroe, the many times elected um, secretary of of, of the state secretary. And then, of course, the late uh, Slade Gorton. The three of them got together and, and just ended whale hunting in Washington waters forever. And that was in 1976, really quite recently. But uh, sadly, there's one, uh, only one survivor of that era today, and she's still in the Miami Seaquarium. Her name is Tokatai, and she's been there for more than 50 years. 
This is a totem pole that was carved for her uh, by carvers at the Lummi Nation. And what you see here are people laying hands on this totem pole, blessing it. Uh, It's about to be taken on a journey all the way down to Miami to try to really create awareness of Tokatai and her continuing captivity and to urge her release. Uh, the Miami Seaquarium would not see the Lummi delegation, and so what they did was set up a loudspeaker across the street from the Seaquarium and, and play orca calls for Tokatai. One of the most interesting pieces of reporting in the book, I think, is the account of what happened when a reporter for uh, Dateline NBC went down to see Tokatai. They wouldn't let me go see her. They don't allow that. I, I asked and asked and asked because I really wanted to see her and talk to her vet and all that stuff. They always said no. But this one reporter did go quite a long time ago, and he took recordings of LPOD calls with him. And he described how uh, he turned on the recorder, and she came racing across the tank and just pointed her head at the recorder and just wanted to hear it and hear it and hear it. So she's still down there. And uh, this aquarium says she's better off there because, after all, look at her relations facing um, endangerment in Puget Sound. We'll see what happens. The other thing that we did was we, we went out uh, while we were still going after this story of the orcas and, and what was the problem, why were they not doing well. We went out to sea with NOAA on their, on their Primo research vessel, which is called the Shimada. We went out on to the Pacific and cruised on the outer shelf for a week. And we were joining scientists there who were really looking into um, what was going on with the juvenile salmon. When they first come out of the Columbia River and hit that they ride that river plume out into the to the ocean. What happens to those fish? Why aren't they doing well? Why aren't they fattening up? I mean, a little baby's fish, fish's job when they first head out to sea is to get fat fast. Basically, bigger than a bird's beak is the job, <laughs> as quickly as possible. And so on this cruise, uh, the scientists were, were dragging a net through the surface of the water and basically bringing in anything they could find to see what was the assemblage of species? What, what was there in the water? And this herring was one of the fish that came up in the net. And you can see how beautiful these fish are when they first come in from the sea. I mean, the beauty of fish is greatly underrated. The colors, the glimmer, the shimmer, the shine, and the mystery that's in their eye. But these herring, they're part of this whole overlooked tribe of fish called forage fish, which are incredibly important to the orcas. If you care about orcas, you really need to care about forage fish. These are herring, sand lance, and other little fish. They're, you know, this long, and, and when they're young, they're even smaller. In other words, just the right size for a baby salmon to eat. So these forage fish are feeding the salmon that feed the orcas. There's this old saying in Coast Salish country, little fish feed big fish, feed black fish. <laughs> so... You know, I, one of the things that was really driven home for me in the, in the reporting about why are, the, why are the orcas hungry, they're hungry because they're not getting enough salmon to eat. What's, what's the problem for the salmon? Well, one of the problems is all these habitat changes that we've made, including hardening of the near shore so that you don't have the natural beaches that forage fish need for spawning and for laying their eggs. So it's all connected, the uplands, the beaches, the near shore, the estuaries, the rivers, these are all part of a healthy living ecosystem that support the orcas. So then it was time to come back home and look at Puget Sound and ask ourselves the question, all right, central Puget Sound, that's where the, that's where the orcas come in winter, it's where most of us live. What are the changes that we've made that are depressing the salmon runs such that these orcas aren't doing well? What are the changes in the water quality such that when they do get a salmon, there are these enduring pollutants in the, in the fish that can affect their health? The orcas are really affected by three main threats. Uh, the first is food, lack of regularly available quality food. Second, there's too much noise. The water is just full of ferries and ships and container ships and boats and fishermen and whale watch tours, basically us everywhere they turn around. And orcas catch their food by sound. They hunt in the dark by sound. They have a very sophisticated kind of biosonar called echolocation. And they have to be able to hear a very quiet little click of their radar coming back from the swim bladder of a fish. And that's how they tell what species it is. If it's got a 
got the right shaped swim bladder, they know that's a Chinook and that's a fish they're going to go after. And it's not easy. They have to really chase that fish. They have to dive as deep as a thousand feet and twist and turn and accelerate and decelerate and get it out of a hole and bounce it off a wall. I mean, it's a, it's a real struggle. And Chinook don't school, so they have to chase them down one by one. So anything that makes that harder, such as noise, masking that sound that they need to hear, that's a real problem for them. And then furthermore, if that fish is small or that fish is carrying a lot of pollutants, it's, it's not going to feed that orca well. And if the orca hasn't had enough to eat, just like us, it will burn its fat, which is where the toxins are stored. So it's too much noise, too few fish, and then the fish are carrying pollutants. Those are the three main threats facing the orcas in our waters. There are only 73 left. That's a really small number. That's as small as 40 years ago after the capture era. So they're not recovering. We're not getting where we need to go. Here's why. So (laughs) it's one of those double-edged swords. You know, you can look at that and say, okay, fine. If you look at that from a salmon's perspective, that's not good. We have turned this beautiful landscape into the largest, uh, the second largest shipping depot on the West Coast. I mean, this is the Kent Valley. And what used to be farmland today is in Tukwila is home to all these warehouses. And that's the Green River in a jacket of levees, a cement jacket of levees all the way down to uh, where it meets the Duwamish and enters into what's now an industrial shipping channel. So, you know, if you're salmon... And you know, and you need cold, clean water. This paved bike trail in a in a levee without any trees is exactly what's bad for you. I mean, there's no shade. It's too hot. You don't have the delicious uh, little insects and leaf litter raining down from the trees to feed you. Uh, you don't have any nice deep hidey holes to hide in. You don't have you don't have the things that make a river a river. And so, you know, the good side of this is it's pretty clear what the problem is, right? And I actually, I have to laugh at that when I say that because you think, well, why is that good? Well, it's good because we know what the problem is. There's so many big issues facing us today where we don't even know what to do. Well, in this case, we know what to do. It's as simple as cold, clean water running downhill. And it works every time. I mean, if we fix the rivers that support the salmon uh, and, and the forests that keep the rivers cool, well, then you get more salmon and then you have more for the orcas to eat. And this is, a, this is the Green River, just a little higher upstream. And what's going on here is the King County Flood District and the King County Council and other partners have put a lot of money into pulling out and moving back levee walls and also replanting streams and making this a more natural river. There's still a lot more work to do in the green. There's no fish passage at the Howard Hansen Dam, which is a major flood control structure. It's one of the reasons we're not flooding right now in Auburn, because of the Howard Hansen Dam. But it was built without any fish passage, which means fully half of the Green River watershed and all of the best of it is not accessible to coho or chinook or steelhead. We've known this for a long time. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has regarded that as a jeopardy uh, finding against the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and told them to get fish passage built at the Howard Hansen Dam. And they started, and then they blew their budget, and then it had to go back and do another budget, and and so there's still no fish passage at the Howard Hansen Dam. (laughs) So... You know, we can make this better, but it takes uh, setting priorities and sticking to them and and executing. Uh, This is California. We went to California uh, as our last stop in the journey of the orcas to understand what was going on for them down there. You know, people call them the southern residents for a reason. They we forget that they forage all the way down to San Francisco Bay for their fish. And the Sacramento River used to be um, the second largest producer of salmon um, in North America. It's hard to remember that. People, a lot of people have even forgotten that California is a salmon state. And when you look at this picture, it's easy to see why. This is San Francisco Bay. We're about to land in our Alaska Airlines flight to start our trip. And I said, Steve, Steve, you've got to take that picture. And I like to show this to Washington and Seattle audiences to say, you know, 
we're not here yet. We don't yet have this level of development, this level of population pressure. It's not too late here at all. I mean, you know how it is when you come back here from any place and you feel so incredibly relieved. It's like, oh, it's still so beautiful. We have trees and mountains and rivers and wild animals. Very true. Um, California, everything happened first and worst for salmon in California because of the gold rush. There was just an incredible destruction of the riparian habitat uh, from mining and also the loss of native cultures uh, that were exterminated, pushed out of the way. It, it was a it was a very, very um, dangerous and desperate time for native people and for native wildlife. And today, uh, the Sacramento River, it heats up uh, terribly because the, the Shasta Dam, 600 feet top, tall on the Sacramento River, sits there without any fish passage, and a lot of the water is siphoned out of the Sacramento for agriculture in California, and also to send it to the cities to the south. Most of the water uh, is in the mountains to the north, and the water is sent away to the south in some of the biggest interbasin transfers you can possibly imagine. And so what is this, where does this leave the winter run Chinook? This is a unique run of Chinook in the world. And they come back to the Sacramento River. Uh, they stage and begin to return to the river in, in the wintertime. That's why they're called that. But they don't make their spawning run until the summer. And so here they are stuck in the Central Valley floor below the Shasta Dam in the middle of the summer. And the water gets incredibly hot. They used to go up to the volcanic springs of the high mountains in Shasta and Mount Shasta and do just fine, but they can't get there now. And we went out, we spent this 105 degree day with a biologist looking at these returning Chinook and, you know, it was quite sad. We did see a few on their reds just hanging in the water, exhausted after their spawning nest had been dug, just really waiting to die. And after this baking hot day with this biologist talking about this you know, nearly extinct run of salmon in a place that's also being overrun by wildfire. It all felt very apocalyptic. Steve and I went to this uh, restaurant at the end of the day just to get some dinner, and we had a salad and about six glasses of water. And the waitress took my credit card. She said, oh, Seattle Times, what are you doing down here? And I said, oh, well, we're here doing a story about orcas and salmon. And she said, oh, well, I don't get cable, so I don't know anything about that. I thought, well, you know, how sad is that? They're right here. They they come all the way here to, um, you know, these coastal waters, and, and they're right here in your river. But that that's the point, isn't it? It's awareness. You know, we still have that awareness here in Washington State of ourselves as salmon people and that every river is a salmon river. And, um, yeah, I think as long as we have that awareness and we, and we insist on that future, we can make some changes. And I think that, you know, there there is real reason for hope. I mean, this is L, what, 25? She's the oldest orca, and she's my totem animal. You know, she's been out there since 1928, which is when she was born, we think, which makes her old indeed. She was born before any of the dams on the Columbia or Snake River were built. She was born back when the population of Washington State was about a million and a half people, and she's still out there feeding her family. She's still out there persisting during this time of immense ecological change. So that shows you what these animals are capable of. You know, she's still out there catching salmon and sharing them with her family. And uh, here's one of the J-pod whales who's had one of the five babies that have been born in the last three years. This is spectacular. You know, when Tahlequah had her calf, that was the first baby that had been born to these southern resident killer whales in many years. And then all of a sudden, we had this little tiny boomlet of babies. And there are three mothers out there to be right now who are very, very pregnant. And who knows? Maybe we could have some more calves. So, you know, they, these animals, um, I think in many ways, it's, it's about us really just giving them what they need. They can take care of the rest. And they, they're, they're actually still persisting in spite of it all. I think for me, the thing that is so inspiring about these animals is just exactly that persistence. You know, this, <laughs> this is an incredible species. I know people have said to me, oh, aren't they, aren't they afraid of you when, they, when you see you when they see you out there in a boat? And it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> this is an animal that can first swim 35 miles an hour. It weighs tons and tons. It's, 
incredibly powerful and charismatic, and and I just think that um, you know whatever we we can do to make sure that they're always here for the future, we ought to do. And likewise, the salmon. I mean, this is an animal that's radiated into every possible uh, habitat since the Pleistocene, and you know they're always finding their way into new places, new habitats. You know, the Elwha River is a great example of this. We made the decision as a country in 1992 to do the world's biggest dam removal ever on the Elwha River and take down two dams that were built in the early 1900s without any fish passage. That was 10 years ago today, and uh, there are now 8,000 Chinook salmon heading back to the Elwha River. Not only that, but all these other animals that depend on uh, Chinook salmon are, are also doing better. Even songbirds that eat coho eggs and the insects that feed on salmon carcasses, such as the dipper, which is this beautiful songbird that you've probably seen in Puget Sound rivers. And, you know, those the females today are bearing double clutches. They don't even migrate, and they're bigger in body size since more salmon started coming back. There are more eagles. Um, it's just a place that's really been reset and, and is it's a spectacular return to life. And Washington's newest beach is at the mouth of the Elwha. All that sediment that used to be penned up behind the dams uh, today is down on Washington's newest beach and in the near shore, where once again there's a crab fishery. It's really quite a spectacular transformation, and, and we're only in the first 10 years. So change is possible. And these are the sorts of changes that uh, we can and do make and just need to do uh, more of. So with that, I'm going to ask my lovely assistant to play the video that, that I've got for you. Uh, this is a video that I actually took with my iPhone out on Puget Sound one day when I was out in a research boat with Brad Hansen uh, from the National Oceanic an atmospheric administration. And what's going on here is, um, this is really just about this time two years ago, November, and the JK and L pods of orcas were all here. And it was the first time the three pods had been together in, in Puget Sound country, and it was very exciting. I got a call from Brad Hansen in the newsroom. He said, hey, Linda, the orcas are here, and we're going to go out and do some, some health surveys. Do you want to come along? I'm like, yeah, sure, <laughs> of course I do. So Steve and I and, and Ramon Dampour, the videographer, went out and met um, Brad at, in West Seattle at the boat ramp and hopped in a Zodiac, and we went out. And this is what we saw. I mean, right here in downtown Seattle. This is right off the west side of, uh, pardon me, the east side of Vashon Island. And the, these orcas are just headed towards Elliott Bay. And I think one of the things that always surprises me when I'm with the orca whales is how of course, how beautiful are and they are, and the sound of their breath. You know, it's a sound like from the beginning of the world. And how playful they are. You know, they, they goof around a lot. They swim along underwater backwards just for fun. They whap their tail like this one is and that one is seemingly just for fun. I think it's like you hear the sound. Um, you know, it's, it's just a wonder. And it's a wonder that, that we never, ever uh, want to end. I mean, downtown orcas, who's got that? I'm going to read to you just a little from the book as you watch the film. The southern resident orcas still seek the fish returning to Puget Sound rivers, surging even all the way into the urban waters offshore of downtown Seattle, hunting chum, coho, and chinook. The special time for Seattle area residents is when the southern residents in their final seasonal rounds of the year come here at last. Downtown orcas, who else has that? Sometimes the southern residents are here for days on end, thrilling ferry riders crisscrossing central Puget Sound and people flocking to beaches all over West Seattle and Vashon and Maury Islands to watch orcas blow and breach right offshore. One day in November 2018, JK and L pods were all here at once. Dozens of orcas were cartwheeling and spy hopping right past the Superfund site of the, of the Asarco smelter at Ruston near Tacoma, right past the dense packed housing along the long ago logged off hillsides. They sculled underwater upside down, their bellies glowing white through the green water and slapped their pectoral fins and flukes 
seemingly just for fun, or maybe simply to hear the loud, resonant, smacking sound. As the sunset painted the water gold, people thronged the beaches and shorelines and chanted all over again at what it means to live here in a place still alive with salmon and orcas on the hunt. The southern residents, resident orcas that roam the region's urban waters are like black and white robed judges of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They remind us of all, they remind us all of what is still here and what is at risk what we took for ourselves, what we took from them. Their hunger is an indictment because we caused it. Their hunger points to what's missing. At stake, as the region gets richer, is whether it also will get poorer, with only the grandmother orcas remembering the salmon that used to be. And with that, I'm very happy to take your questions. Uh, Thank you very much for being here. I also want to tell you about my flowers. (laughs) So this is a lay, and it was dropped around my neck by Cindy Abisu. Cindy, would you stand up for just a second? Cindy is a third grade teacher up in Shoreline and um, in a public school, and she's been really one one of the greatest friends of the orcas and of my work since it all started. Back when I was doing Hostile Waters, um, I first started hearing from Cindy, and I went out to her classroom and discovered that all of the kids had made little orcas that they hung from the lights. And, uh, you know, she's also been a friend to me during the time that I was uh, writing the book. Her kids from the class would, would send me cards that I'd put up. I was staying at Friday Harbor Labs when I wrote most of the book, which was a wonderful experience. And then tonight when I walked in, she dropped this beautiful orchid lay around my neck because her husband, John, just got back from Seattle. So, you know, um, writers move in pods, too, and we appreciate support. (laughs) So uh, with that, I do want to take your questions. Go ahead. I'm here for you. Um, Well, thank you so much, Linda. I'm going to actually read them out to you from Mm -hmm. over here. Um, Hi, everyone. My name's Candace. I'm uh, one of the event managers here at Town Hall. Um, so the first one, with the story of Tilequa holding onto her calf for so long, did she understand her calf uh, was gone, and do orcas uh, comprehend grief or experience grief? Right. So the question was, when she was carrying that calf, did Tilequa understand that the calf was dead? Um, and, and do orcas comprehend what's happening to them now? And I, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that she knew that the calf was gone. I'm sure she knew that. And as a matter of fact, I think all the other members of her pod knew that, too. I mean, let's remember they have that echolocation ability. They can see inside the swim bladder of a salmon. That means they can see inside her. They knew she was pregnant all this time. And, you know, they, they, they knew. And they stayed with her. It was very interesting. You know, she was really... Um, kept company by the other orcas in the pod the whole time she was carrying the baby. They, they stayed with her. It was really a procession watching them going through the water together. And uh, so I'm sure she knew what had happened. I'm sure they knew what had happened. And I, I'm sure they know what's going on now. I mean, I think we're past the time when people thought animals didn't have intelligence, that they were just sort of animals of rote instinct and... I think we all understand that these are intelligent animals. We know that um, their brain, as a proportion of their body, is is bigger than almost any other animal. It's not only large, it's very, very complex with many, many, many folds and intricacies. They have portions of their brain that we don't even have. We don't even know what it's for. We just know we don't have it. Um, the portions of their brain that are particularly large have to do with empathy, which is interesting because you think about how they treat one another, the way they stick together through thick, thin, lifelong. And their lives are quite long. I mean, look at uh, the oldest matriarch. She's in her 90s, and she's still caring for all the others in the pod, still sharing food, still checking in. I mean, it's it's remarkable. These really are societies and um and families, and I'm sure that Talakwa knew what had happened to her, and I, I think these whales know what's happening to them. I mean, I often think to myself when a whale like L25 is going all the way down to the outer coast of California to get those winter Chinook that are now so very, very rare, 
you know, is she getting any fish or is she just working off a memory of fish? Because that's where her grandmother taught her to go. Uh, and that can be the real problem for these animals where they have this deep ecological memory that's been taught to them by prior generations and they go there and things have changed. The fish are no longer there. It's not that they aren't capable of adapting. They do. I've told you about how they're now primarily on the outer coast in the summer rather than in the Samoan Islands. But I wonder if, you know, is it for them a little like it is for us? You know, I get so many calls from all kinds of people talking about a place they used to love to go fishing in in Puget Sound or on the Skagit River, you know, to get some big slab-sided Chinook and put in a smoker. And the, or they'll talk about how they used to wiggle flounder right out of the sand with their grandfather, you know. And I think to myself, if the orcas spoke in a language that we could understand, are they saying the same thing? I used to come here with my grandmother. There were so many fish. What happened? This next question, do you, do you think you would have been as passionate about orcas if you weren't based in the Pacific Northwest? And what other species pique your interest? So the question was, would I have been passionate about the orcas if I didn't live in the Pacific Northwest? And what was the second half? Uh, what other species pique your interest? Oh, what other species pique my interest? Well, each and every one. <laughs> I, I was, look, I mean, I'll level with you. I was one of those weird kids, right, that was always outside. And I, I was fortunate to grow up in a place with seven acres of woods and a frog pond. And my mom said to me every morning, go outside and find something to do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, every picture of me as a kid, I have a black eye and I'm covered with calamine lotion and I'm in my Girl Scout shorts and I have my Captain Crunch cereal whistle around my neck with a string and it was heaven. It was just great. And I, it turned me into a naturalist at a, at a very early age in the um, most amateur sense of the word. And the root of the word amateur, of course, is love. And that's what it was all about for me. It was the love and fascination of seeing a firefly light on my knee or hear a frog gronking away in some dank little rocky corner of the pond and, you know, go find it and look at it and watch its golden eyes blink. And it, it just, um, you know, here in the Pacific Northwest, the orcas, they captivate us all because they are so spectacular and, and charismatic. And, and the salmon, I don't happen to fish, but I, I see the salmon really as symbols of how our region is doing in terms of its ecological health. And likewise, the orcas. You know, if they're doing well, probably we're doing well. And if the salmon are doing well, we're probably doing well. And the obverse is also true. But, you know, there isn't a species that doesn't thrill me. Last night I was spending quite a lot of time watching a spider in my house. <laughs> And telling them, you know, you've got to work on that part of the web over there, <laughs> you know. I've got some geraniums in the house, and um, a cross spider came in on one of the pots, and so it's now got this whole elaborate little ecosystem going with its web and my geraniums, and, uh, you know, the little insects get caught in there, and so I've got my little November wild kingdom going right in the house. So, you know, I, I think we are so fortunate to live in a planet that we get to share with this vast intelligence, as my writer friend Lyanda Haupt says in her books. It's so true, isn't it? You know, these animals that are beyond words in the sense that um, they have a kind of intelligence that our words can't even begin to capture. So it's all good, and, and out here we're, we're so fortunate to still keep company with all these animals. Can you recommend, I think it's supposed to be an NGO that can help uh, the orcas and their habitat. Can you recommend one that you support? Right. So the question was, can I uh, recommend an NGO, a nonprofit that is helping out with the orcas? I get asked this all the time. And <laughs> frankly, I hate to answer it because um, there's so many and they're all working hard and they have their different niche. Uh, and so I would say it really depends on what your passion is. If you want to fund science, you know, there, there are these all sorts of fantastic science-based research nonprofits, such as Wild Orca, um, with Deborah Giles, who is a scientist that I worked with out on the boats many times, writing these articles, doing this book. Uh, Rob Williams at Oceans Initiatives. It's a, based right here in Seattle. It's a science nonprofit. But there are other uh, fantastic NGOs. If what you want to do is get your hands dirty and plant a tree or um, you know, work on salmon recovery, these local salmon recovery enhancement groups 
they're just terrific. I mean, they're out there in our local watershed uh, figuring out what a salmon need and working on getting it, whether it's, um, you know, taking, taking out shoreline armoring or... I mean, this is the thing. I, I guess I would say that individual action is really important and we all should take individual actions, but ultimately we're at the level now, whether it's climate or saving salmon and orcas, where what we really need is governmental level change and, and money to pay for it. I mean... I, I come from New York where we have this really useful thing. It's called taxes. <laughs> and, you know, public health, education, wildlife conservation, it comes in handy, let me tell you. Um, and here in Washington, orca and salmon compete with everything else for funding. And, you know, they need a dedicated fund for habitat repair. Every biologist I talk to, every policy person I talk to, federal or state, talks about this. I mean, we're at the point now of these $100 million projects for taking down dams, taking out shoreline armoring, restoring estuaries. And, you know, there's just a lot of stuff out there on the landscape that was built in the early 1900s that we don't even need anymore. It's just in the way. And dam removal has, you know, really changed from what was thought of as this, like, radical, crazy, lunatic, uh, antisocial <laughs> thing to do to a community problem-solving tool. I can, I can give you an example. Um, the Nooksack River, just a summer ago, the city of Bellingham realized that it was going to cost them more to fix the dam that had been placed a water diversion 100 years earlier than to just buy water from Snohomish County. So that's what they did. They, they partnered with um, American Rivers and the Washington State Legislature put in $10 bucks. The Tulalip Tribes put in money. American Rivers provided technical expertise, and they took the dam out. And now Chinook have access to the upper watershed for the first time in a in hundred years. So this is the kind of thing that's going on all over Washington, and uh, will continue to go on all over the country because a lot of infrastructure was built a hundred years ago, and it's falling apart. And and now we also, in a situation like the Elwha can see the tremendous benefit of what happens if we uh, let the fish have what the fish need. There's a lot more coming. I mean, the Klamath, which is a river that runs from eastern Oregon all the way down to northern California, they're taking four dams out of the Klamath beginning in 2023. This will be the world's largest ever dam removal, and it's going to open 400 miles of spawning habitat. So big and small, here, there, everywhere, this is, this is the kind of... Um, large-scale work that's underway and there needs to be more of. So, yes, individual action, number one, for yourself, so you can feel you're doing something and also be an example, but it really will take these uh, community-scale, government-scale efforts and money to pay for them to really move the needle for salmon and orca. And this is where you come in. I mean, this is when you get out your pen and your envelope and your stationery and your stamp, and you write an actual real letter to Patty Murray or Maria Cantwell or Jay Inslee or your state legislators. And believe me, if they're just like us. If they get an actual real letter from a real person, they're stunned. <laughs> it has an outsized impact. So use your voice. You know, vote and uh, be involved. Uh, well, we have reached time. There are quite a few other questions, but um, a couple of them are kind of themed on... Um, you know, what, what you think the likelihood is uh, that any of this will be restored, that dams will be taken down, that the salmon uh, population and habitats will be restored, and, and what gives you hope for um, the orca's recovery? Oh, um, 100%. I don't have any doubt about it at all because we're doing it now, and we just need to do more. And, and every time we do it, it works. So, I, look, I mean, I, I think if, if anything, I want people to leave tonight feeling empowered and clear about this. This is not some, like, mystery. What do we do? <laughs> we know exactly what to do. It's kind of like the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which we passed in the 1970s. And today there are more porpoises and whales and, you know, humpback whales and gray whales and um, seals and sea lions than there were in our parents' generation. Why? Because we stopped killing them. It works every time. <laughs> well, this is, this is a little similar. The capture era ended 40 years ago, though, so that tells us that that's not enough. We also need to uh, make sure they have the same thing we need, which is something to eat and somewhere to be. So, you know, for the salmon... 
They need what salmon need, cold, clean water running downhill so that they can go be a nice, succulent, delicious, fat, juicy meal for an orca. Town Hall Seattle presented this talk by Linda V. Mapes on November 18th, 2021. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org slash speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon. <laughs>